Father, uh, help us, Lord, to offer up to you the sacrifice of praise. Uh, there's so many things that we can allow to get in the way of us giving you the fruit of our lips that is the praises of your name. But Lord, your, your greatness and your might and your worth is such that there's no, no inconvenience, no trial, no nothing that should ever stop us from exalting your name and declaring your praises to everyone around us. And Lord, we pray that uh, every day we would remember your greatness and your worth and how you deserve, Lord, for us to, to sing loud your praises. Um, make us true worshipers of yours, true worshipers of your Son, our Lord Jesus, true worshipers of your Spirit. And Lord, as we study your word together this morning, may you secure our hearts even more uh, than they were yesterday, that we would go all out in following our Lord Jesus and following his example. Uh, he is the one who spilled his blood to purchase us. Lord, um, help us to follow closely after him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're beginning Ruth chapter 4 today, so turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. And my intention was to go through the first 12 verses, but I figured out last night I bit off way more than I could chew, and it was just going to be a, a data dump, which none of you would be thrilled by. So we cut it in half. We're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 4. So let me read those verses for us. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will not redeem it, or if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Tomorrow, as you know, all know, is Memorial Day. It's a day when we remember the men and the women who, in the words of Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address, they laid down their lives, they gave the last full measure of devotion. They laid down their lives in service to others. And our Lord Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed and crucified, said this in John's Gospel, chapter 15, 
Verse 13, he said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus himself, the very next day, after having said those words, would give his last full measure of devotion and lovingly lay down his life. And he would do so to an infinitely greater degree than any who have gone before him or any who have come after him. He, as God incarnate, laid down his human life, bearing the just wrath of God in payment for sin, the sins of his people. And in so doing, not only did he purchase eternal redemption for his people, but he also gave his people an example to follow. As those who follow Christ, our lives are to be marked by the same selfless, loving kindness for others that he himself displayed by loving his people to the end. In Ruth 4, we see the meeting of two men. Both of these men are potential redeemers. Both of them have the opportunity to lay down their lives in service to two needy women and in service to the memory of their dead relatives. They will both have the opportunity to love this struggling family to the end. But one of these men will stop short of doing so, and one of these men will not. He will go all the way. In the man who stops short, we will find an example to avoid. But in the example of the man who does not stop short, we will find an example to follow. But in both cases, we will find ourselves driven to Jesus Christ to find forgiveness for our selfishness and to find power to live a life of selflessness. Today, this morning, the bulk of our study is going to be spent looking at the man who stopped short of rescuing this family. In chapter 3, just to catch us back up to speed, we saw Boaz express his willingness to marry Ruth to accomplish redemption for her and Naomi. But as you remember, there was a complication. There was another man, another redeemer, one who was more closely related to Naomi than Boaz was. And because he was more closely related, it was this man who bore the right and the responsibility to redeem them. So before Boaz could act to redeem Ruth and Naomi, he first needed to know whether or not this closer relative wanted to do it himself. And in chapter 3, verse 13, Boaz promised Ruth that he would get the matter of her redemption sorted out that morning. That brings us to verse 1. In verses 1 and 2, we see Boaz basically setting the stage to accomplish Ruth's redemption. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, or the redeemer, of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz, having left early that morning to accomplish what he had promised to Ruth that he would accomplish, came to the gate of Bethlehem. And the gate of a city was more than just an entryway. It wasn't this flimsy little door that, that creaked open as you walked through. No, it was a sizable structure. It was a, a place where a number of social, administrative, and business activities took place. The gate of a city was the beating heart 
of that city. And oftentimes a city gate, uh, discovered by archaeologists as they observe city gates, oftentimes city gates contained alcoves or little side rooms that were built into the wall. And these rooms were ringed by benches. So a bench was built into the wall all the way around those rooms. And that was for people to sit down and conduct their business. And this is what we see Boaz doing in verse 1. He goes to the gate and he sits down because he's going to conduct business. And as Boaz sits down, the narrator tells us, Behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And when the narrator says, Behold, it reminds you of the incident in chapter 2, verse 4. Remember when Ruth told Naomi she was going to go and, and her plan was to glean in a field of someone in whose eyes she could find favor. And unwittingly, she goes to Boaz's field. And while she's there, uh, verse 4 says of chapter 2, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. In that case, and in this one where Boaz sits and behold, that other redeemer passes by, in both cases, we can see God's surprising providence. It's not by chance that in each situation, two people are coming together. The very people who need to come together in order for redemption to move forward. You get the sense that no sooner had Boaz sat down that he then sees the very man that he needed to see to accomplish Ruth and Naomi's redemption. God is in this. God is working things out for them. Seeing this man, Boaz beckons him to sit down with him. And this is the man that Boaz had referred to back in chapter 3, verse 12, when he said, there is a redeemer closer than I. This is that man. This man, like Boaz, is a kinsman redeemer. He's a man who is related to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And as such, he is qualified to redeem or to rescue Naomi and Ruth from their desperate situation. But since he is more closely related to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz is, the right and the responsibility to redeem falls to him first. And interestingly, for such an important man, the narrator does not give us his name. My translation has Boaz calling him friend. But the wording is actually more ambiguous than that. The phrase for friend that my, my version translates it as is more like so-and-so or a certain someone. Boaz told so-and-so to sit down, and that's how I'm going to refer to him from now on, Mr. So-and-so. The narrator who's been so careful about giving us names does not give us this man's name, either because he doesn't want to or because he wasn't able to if, if there was no record of his name. And I just want you to keep that detail in the back of your mind because we're going to circle back to it, the fact that this man's name is not known. Now look at verse 2. He, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Boaz, who is at the gate to conduct legal business, rounds up ten of the city's elders. And in ancient Israel, the elders basically made up the city's local government. They served as witnesses 
providing a measure of legality to agreements that were struck between parties. They also could settle disputes and render judgments. In the book of the law, we see them involved in in murder cases. And these ten elders also take their seats along with Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. So with all the pieces in place, Boaz is ready to conduct his business. He has everyone he needs in order to legally bring about the accomplishment of Naomi and Ruth's redemption. And just like he promised, he's not wasted any time in seeking after their redemption. So Boaz has set the stage for the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. Now we come to verses 3 through 8, where we're going to find Mr. So-and-so stopping short of accomplishing redemption for these two women. Now, before I get into the details of verses 3 through 8, I just want to be up front with you all that I'm not fully confident in my understanding of every detail of this passage. As you'll see later in verse 7, you see there that the narrator has to explain a custom to his readers, a custom that over time general knowledge had been lost of. And if you think about that fact and compare where we stand today compared to where this author's readers originally stood, if they had lost information by that time, how much more information has been lost to us? We don't understand certain customs that took place. The Old Testament law uh, was very much general guidelines that specific situations as they sprung up would be applied in certain ways, and the certain ways in which those laws were applied in particular situations, a lot of cases we don't have firsthand knowledge of of how it was worked out, practically speaking. And what we're going to see in this passage is a host of Old Testament laws converging in their relevance to what is going to take place. And there's a lot of background that that it's hard to put your finger on in knowing how that law was supposed to play out in this specific situation. And as I studied this passage for myself, and as I read the commentators, I discovered that at certain points, we were all, me and the the guys in the books I was reading, were trying to feel our way through the dark to figure out what exactly is happening. But I think you'll see that the overall meaning is still clear enough. So if, as I work through this, you find yourself getting a bit confused, it's probably because I'm still confused and I'm explaining it in a confused manner. But don't give up on the passage. There's still stuff here to to challenge us and to grow us. So let's let's try to pick our way through verses 3 through 8 of chapter 4. We find Boaz begin his business. Verse 3. Then he, Boaz, said to the Redeemer, the closer relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so that Naomi intends to sell the field of her husband, Elimelech. Now, this is the first we're hearing of this, right? We haven't heard of Naomi wanting or needing to sell a field. This is the first we're hearing of it. But no doubt it's her poverty that has put her in this position to have to sell land in order to raise funds to live off of. 
Now, we have to take a moment here and get into the weeds of the, the Old Testament law in order to understand a little better what's going on here. When Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so that Naomi has to sell her husband's land, he doesn't mean sell in the way you and I mean it when we say it. If I sold you a piece of land, that land is yours permanently, free and clear. It's not going to revert back to me. It's yours unless you want to sell it to someone else. But that's not the way it worked in Israel. Turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 25 to see this. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 23, it says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So who does the land ultimately belong to? It's God. So the people living on the land that God is allowing to sojourn with him, they do not have the right to sell it permanently to whoever they want because it's God's land. And because of that, verse 24, thus for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If they do redeem it, or if they do sell it, they need to make sure that at some point that land is going to come back to that family. Because it's God's land, he apportioned it to the tribes and the clans that he wanted to apportion it to, and he intends for that never to leave their possession. It's his land given to his people as an everlasting possession. He doesn't want that compromised. So there was always a way for the land to return back to the original family who owned it. Verse 25, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, which appears to be the case with Naomi, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Why? So that it will remain with the family. Verse 26, Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale, and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. Now, there's a point of reference here that hasn't been mentioned yet, which is the year of Jubilee. Okay, that is what goes into the calculation for the person buying the land back. Now, he'll he'll speak of the Jubilee in verse 28. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of jubilee but at the jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property so we see there that the land was not the israelites to sell permanently what they could do was sell the use of their land for a set amount of time Uh, the jubilee that was a time when Uh, Native slaves were set free when land that had been sold returned back to the original owner, and it occurred every 50 years. At the year of Jubilee, any property that had been sold would revert back to the original owners. So say you were poor and you needed some money, 
and the only thing you had left to raise money was your land, and you decide you want to sell it, say you're 20 years away from the year of Jubilee. If you sell it, you're not selling it permanently. What you're doing is selling it, selling the use of it to someone. And you're selling 20 years worth of use of it to someone because you're 20 years away from the year of Jubilee when it will be returned back to you. That is what is being purchased, the use of the land for a set amount of time. Now, you didn't have to wait until Jubilee to get your land back if you wanted it back. If you recovered financially to the point where you could buy it back, you could go and buy it back. The purchaser would not be able to withhold it from you. You could buy it back. Or if you had a relative who could buy it back for you, he at any time could do that. But if you did that, you would have to reimburse the one you sold it to. So say you're 20 years from Jubilee, you sell it, and then you get the funds back, you want to buy it back, and you're only five years in to that 20-year time period, how many years' worth do you have to refund to the purchaser? Fifteen years' worth. And you would reimburse that money to that guy, and you'd get that land back. And the buyer couldn't refuse to give it back to you. So when Boaz says that Naomi has to sell Elimelech's land, what she is selling is not the land, but the use of the land for a limited amount of time. Now back in Ruth 4, we come to verse 4. Boaz says, So I thought to inform you, inform him that Naomi is selling the land. I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will not redeem it, or excuse me, if you will redeem it, Redeem it, but if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So in verse 4, Boaz says that he thought to inform Mr. So-and-so of the fact that Naomi's selling the land by calling on him to buy it, to buy the use of it, and to do so in a public manner, to, to make that purchase legal and binding by committing to it in front of the elders whom Boaz had gathered together. In verse 4, it mentions, or Boaz says, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. It seems as though some other rubberneckers or onlookers had passed by and they saw what was going on and, and sat down to watch. Well, they also would serve as witnesses to what's going on. And Boaz says... Mr. So-and-so, if you will redeem that land, do so. But if you won't, let me know so that I can redeem it, since I am the next one down the line from you. Now, this sounds like a good deal to Mr. So-and-so. Therefore, he says, all right, yes, I will redeem it. Now, why was it a good deal for him? Well, according to commentator Robert Hubbard, quote, financially... The investment was a bargain without risk. There were no known heirs of Elimelech to reclaim title to the property later, and elderly Naomi was certainly unlikely to produce any. So she's selling. She's not going to recover financially to get it back. She has no children who at some point will want to get it back. And he's the, next, he's the, the one down the line, so nobody's going to cut in front of him and buy it back. He's... He's got it for a good amount of time. Hubbard 
continues. He says, even the year of Jubilee, were it applicable, would pose no threat to his ownership. Hence, his little investment would develop into years of productive, profitable harvests. It would enlarge the inheritance of his heirs, unquote. Now, why would the year of Jubilee not threaten his use of the field? Well, now let's go to Numbers, chapter 27, where we find another law that relates to this situation. In this chapter, we see the daughters of Zelophehad, as that second generation of Israelites are about to enter the promised land. Their father died in the wilderness without having any sons. And as they're going into the promised land, what's going to happen? The promised land is going to be apportioned to everybody who comes. But their dad is dead. There's no sons. And so they realize dad's not going to get any land. So they bring up this dilemma to Moses. And God takes this concern very seriously. So Numbers 27, verse 8. This is what God says. He says, Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So you see, if Mr. So-and-so gets this land, because Naomi's husband Elimelech had no surviving offspring, there would be no one for the land to revert back to at the year of Jubilee except for who? Mr. So-and-so, because he's the closest relative. So it's going to be his permanently. So it's a good deal for him. He doesn't have to wait for Naomi to die. He can buy it now, get use of it now, and when she dies or when year of Jubilee comes, doesn't matter. It's still his. So in verse 4, we see Mr. So-and-so publicly express his willingness to redeem the field from Naomi. And now that he's done that, now that he's publicly said, yeah, I'll redeem it, Boaz chooses this time to bring up a condition on redeeming the land. And we find that in verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So in other words, if Mr. So-and-so is going to fulfill the role of redeemer for this family, he's going to need to do so fully. He can't say, well, I'll redeem her in this area, but not in this area. No, Boaz is saying, if you're going to be the redeemer, you've got to redeem not only the land, but also Ruth as well. You've got to redeem this family. You've got to raise up a son in the name of Elimelech so that their inheritance will not pass from their family. What that means is that the land of Elimelech would not stay in the possession of Mr. So-and-so. Instead of staying in his possession, who would it go to? It would go to that son that he raised up in the name of Elimelech. And that was in keeping with another Old Testament law, the law of leveret marriage. Leveret just means brother-in-law. Let's, let's look at that law, 
Deuteronomy 25. We've already read it before as we've gone through this, but if you're like me, you've forgotten. Deuteronomy 25. And I'm just going to read a portion of it now. We'll, We'll read the rest of the passage in Deuteronomy 25 later. But we're just going to look at verses 5 and 6 right now of Deuteronomy 25. It says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, that's what's happened with Elimelech, that's what's happened with his sons Kilian and Malan, they died with no sons, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Verse 6, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name not of the father, but of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And your name being blotted out, that was very much tied to the property that you had. All right? So, now that Boaz springs this condition on Mr. So-and-so, he is suddenly faced with a big test of loving kindness. How much loving kindness does he have? This added condition all of a sudden turns what looked like a great investment, financially speaking, into a bad investment. And so the question facing Mr. So-and-so is this. Is he willing not only to buy Elimelech's field, but also to marry Elimelech's daughter-in-law in order to have a son with her so that when that son grows up, that land will go to that son and remain the land of Elimelech. It would mean that eventually Mr. So-and-so will lose this land. He won't get to keep it permanent. He will lose it with this added condition. He may spend a lot of money buying the land only to lose it to the firstborn son that Ruth has. Not only that, but he will be stuck continuing to shoulder the economic burden of taking care of Naomi, taking care of Ruth, taking care of that firstborn child and any other children that he has with her. Faced with this condition, we're going to discover what's in this man's heart. What is his motivation for redeeming the land? Why did he say in verse 4, I'll redeem it? Was he truly looking out for the best interests of Elimelech's family? Was he truly desiring to keep the land within the family so that Elimelech's name would not be blotted out? Or was he just looking for another revenue stream? Was he just looking for another way to make some money? This condition that Boaz adds is going to reveal his heart. It's going to reveal whether or not he truly has a redeemer's heart. Is he just a hired hand, or does he really care about this family? Is he going to go the extra mile to show loving kindness? Is Mr. So-and-so willing to make a bad investment, financially speaking, for the sake of saving a family? Verse 6, the redeemer... This nearer relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Here we find the limit of this man's loving kindness. 
Now, we don't know his situation. We don't know whether he already had children whose inheritance would possibly be compromised by any children he would have with Ruth, or whether he had no children yet, and so having a son with Ruth and raising him up in the name of some other guy, maybe that would mean his inheritance gets swallowed up in Elimelech's. Whatever the case may be, because Mr. So-and-so's own inheritance will be jeopardized, he is unwilling to be the redeemer of this family. And it's very interesting that in this way, Mr. So-and-so parallels Naomi's other daughter-in-law, Orpah. Remember chapter 1? Remember that Orpah was initially willing to go with Naomi back to Judah? But once Naomi helped Orpah to see how much it would cost her to go back with Naomi, Orpah decided to turn back. The cost of loving kindness was too great for her. Here, we see the same thing. Initially, Mr. So-and-so is willing to play redeemer to Naomi, but once Boaz informs him of what the full cost of being a redeemer will be, once he is informed of what the true cost of showing loving kindness will be, this man turns back and decides not to redeem. Verse 7. In verse 7, the narrator breaks into the dialogue and he gives his readers some information to help them understand what would happen in verse 8. So let's read both those verses, 7 and 8. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now in verse 7, my translation says that this, this custom of removing the sandal and giving it to the other was done concerning matters of redemption and the exchange of land. Mine says of land. But those two words, of land, are supplied by the translators, trying to clarify what they think is meant. But those two words, of land, are not actually in the original text. It just simply says concerning the redemption and concerning the exchange. So it's, it's the context that determines what exactly is being spoken of here. And in this context, it doesn't seem that land is yet what is being exchanged, but rather the right of redemption that is being exchanged. The exchange represented by the transfer of the sandal between Mr. So-and-so and Boaz is not land, since neither of them is yet in possession of the land. The land is not yet either of theirs to exchange. Naomi is not present to receive payment. What is being exchanged in chapter 4 instead seems to be the responsibility and the right to redeem the land and Ruth. That is what appears to be transferred from one man to the other, the right and the responsibility to redeem. And Mr. So-and-so, who was initially willing to redeem, but now faced with this dual responsibility of redeeming land and Ruth, he decides to transfer, to give up his right of redemption to Boaz. And he symbolizes it by taking off his sandal and giving it to Boaz. 
Now at this point, let's go back to Deuteronomy 25 to finish reading about the law of leveret marriage. Deuteronomy 25, we read verses 5 and 6 describing how if a widow's husband or if a woman's husband died, her brother-in-law was to marry her to raise up a name, uh, to raise up a son in the name of the dead husband. Verses 7 to 10 tell us what happens if that brother refuses to do so. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 25. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders. Again, that's what we see in chapter 4. There's a gate with the elders. And say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, what we see there in Deuteronomy is quite a bit more sanitized than what we saw in Ruth. But you can see the similarities between the two. Of course, in in Ruth 4, Ruth is not present. She's not ripping the man's sandal off. There's no spittle flying into this man's face. And this could be because over the years, tradition had softened the practice Or maybe it's because Mr. So-and-so was not as closely related as a brother. Deuteronomy 25 is talking about a brother of the deceased. Mr. So-and-so is more distantly related than that. And so maybe his offense is not quite so shameful as it would be for a, a blood brother more closely related. But you see in both cases that the refusal to exercise the right and the responsibility of redeeming a widow is communicated by what? The removal of the sandal. And there's another similarity here. In Deuteronomy, who does the man become known as because of his shameful refusal to build up his brother's house? We saw it in verse 10. In Israel, his name shall be called what? The house of him whose sandal is removed. In in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, how is Mr. So-and-so remembered? Well, he's certainly not remembered by his given name, hence why I've been calling him Mr. So-and-so this entire time. His name is not given to us at all. Instead, he is forever known, even to this day, in 2023, as the one who removed his sandal and gave it to Boaz. He's known as the man who stopped short of loving Naomi and Ruth because he was concerned about his own inheritance. Now, before we look down on this man, we need to examine our own hearts. How often will you and I show love to someone only up until the point when the cost of doing so begins to hurt? If you don't keep loving past the point of pain, it may be that your quote-unquote love for the other person that you thought you were displaying loving kindness to up until that point, 
was really only love for who? Yourself. You may have been only thinking about what you could get out of the situation for yourself. Certainly, showing loving kindness, that can boost your reputation. It can put the other person in your debt, though you would never say that's what you were trying to do. It can result in other forms of personal gain. But the question is, will you continue to love that brother or sister in Christ? Will you continue to love that unbeliever even when it hurts your reputation? Even when that person can never take pay you back, even when it will put your own livelihood and future worldly comforts at risk. I think if we're honest, we find ourselves in this man's sandals more often than we would like to admit. We often find that there's a limit to the amount of loving kindness I'm willing to display to someone else. And that's just another way of saying I'm selfish. We too quickly look to see if there's anyone else's foot that I can stick that sandal on because I don't want to shoulder the burden anymore of taking care of this person. And again, think of whether, think of what would happen if Boaz was selfish as well. If Naomi and Ruth were left without a redeemer, who would be willing to love them past the point of pain in order to rescue them? What would happen if you and I lacked that kind of Redeemer? Thank God we have a Redeemer who is not selfish like that. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Mr. So-and-so wasn't willing to become poor to enrich Naomi and Ruth. He, was, he just wanted to hang on to what he had. But God the Son, at unimaginable cost to himself, took on flesh and he dwelt among us. We see that in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word who is God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And having become flesh, Jesus then lived a life of perfect, selfless obedience to God so that his righteousness would be credited to the account of those who trust in him. Romans 5, verse 19. For as through Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of Jesus the many will be made righteous. And then he died on the cross, paying for the sins of his people in full in order to redeem them. Ephesians 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then he rose from the dead so that those who have turned from their sins and who have place their faith in him as their Lord and Savior, would receive the free gift of eternal life. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And the risen and ascended Jesus has united those who trust in him to himself. And he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of them so that they too can become selfless like him and show loving kindness to others the way he has shown it to us. That's what he promised us in John 14, 16 to 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Praise God, we had a redeemer willing to become poor so that we might become rich. Father, you are our great redeemer. You sent your son to be our great redeemer. And, and then you, together with the son, sent our great redeemer, the Holy Spirit, to take up residence inside of us once we repented and believed so that we might become a people zealous for good deeds, zealous for loving one another past the point of pain. Lord, we still fall far short of being like our Lord Jesus. We pray you'd continue to transform us, to make us more like our Savior. And Lord, anyone here who is still dead in sin, still headed for hell, who have not yet repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, again, help them to see in him a redeemer of redeemers, someone that they would run to to find full and free redemption. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are willing and eager to redeem all who come to you by faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen.